want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. We're going to be back at it in our little mini-series on legalism, on discerning legalism. And what I titled kind of in my notes, and then it sort of softened to discerning legalism, I originally called it breaking the back of legalism. And that's just trying to be a little bit dramatic with what is such a subtle and satanic thing that can slip into your life, where you begin to um, buy into the lie or the con that the great con artist, our enemy Satan, is trying to sell us with or dupe us with, to say we're making ourselves right with God or we're keeping ourselves right with God by something we do instead of someone we trust. A gospel that we rely on versus something that we are trying to um, earn, make right, make ourselves right with, or or do religiously to say, "Hey, I'm good. I don't have to deal with my sin because I'm religious." And that's the lie of legalism. I've been, uh, you know, trying to think through ways to clarify the gospel. And one of the clearest uh, definitions in my own mind for what it looks like to be relying on. Grace instead of our own efforts is the idea of rock climbing. And when you rock climb, you know that if you're smart, you're um, harnessed in, unless you're free climbers. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, but you're harnessed in and you're going out the, the side of the, the cliff. And uh, the gospel is like being on belay. It's if whether you're climbing or not, you're harnessed and the harness is saving grace. You just lay back in it. If you've ever done that, you know that's what's holding you and keeping you um, sustained and secure. It's like the gospel. And climbing is something we do in light of that. The climbing isn't saving us. The climbing is just the fruit of being harnessed in. But if you're climbing to save yourself, then eventually you could fall away and um, not be saved. And so you're, you're either in harness and on belay or you're not, and that's uh, you're either saved or you're not. And so discerning through, thinking through legalism and being, being um, duped by Satan and into wrong thinking and blowing that up is so important for your own um, sort of security and knowing where you are before the Lord. Um, if you'll remember, I was a, took a week off, but I'm back, and um, I began in chapter 15 with a scene where Jesus was uh, being confronted by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were like Satan's agents. They were the ones who wanted to promote legalism to keep control over all of the religious population, and they were sent up from Jerusalem, walking up some 70 miles to be with Jesus up in Capernaum because they heard that he was drawing crowds like upwards to 5,000 people gathered, and he's feeding them with family members, which populates up to 15,000 or more people that are there. And lo and behold, through the, the grace vine, they had heard that basically um, Jesus didn't require them to ceremonially wash their hands before they ate all this bread that was given to them, all these fish that was, were given to them to eat. They didn't ceremonially wash. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees came up to test Jesus, and um, they, they came up to call him out. That asking, why do, you, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders so they do not wash their hands when they eat? That's verse 2 of chapter 15. Out of all the things they could have brought up, they're bringing up hand washing and saying, you're not following religious protocol. You're out of bounds with what you're doing. You're leading these people astray because they're not washing their hands before you fed them. And so they wanted to call him out to control, to maintain control. 
And Jesus sees this as a, a major issue that he needs to make right, where they're trying to lead people astray. They're trying to bind people's conscience, consciences with legalism. And out of all the things that Jesus could address, he's addressing this, and he, he takes a lot of time to do it. And so we need to pay attention to understand what legalism is and how it could be something in your own life that you need corrected in your own thinking. Could it be that you are someone who's being duped by Satan to believe that you are just fine in the Lord? You think you're totally secure and you're completely ignoring the issue of dealing with your own sin in your own life. Legalism is, um, just to give you a concise definition, is something like this. Think of, uh, le- think of the gospel in terms of the central target of your life. Just sort of in your mind's eye, make a target. You know, draw a circle in your mind's eye and go, what is the gospel? What's saving me? What, what puts me on belay, you know, where I'm secure? Well, I believe in the death the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And that cross sacrifice, that once for all sacrifice is what saves me from my sin. I know Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's this amazing Messiah. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus came as as the Messiah to, to give himself as a sacrifice for my sin. I've repented of my sin. I've turned away from it. He's changed my heart. I've confessed Jesus is Lord of my life and I'm following him. That's the gospel center, right? That's the target. Now draw a circle around that target and outside of that circle, fill, fill, or out in that second sort of circle area outside of the central target, fill in things like gospel applications. This is what I do because I'm saved. Anything, even good things. Um, these are the traditions that I keep because I'm saved. You know, I, I regularly do this. I regularly come to church. I regularly give at church. I regularly pray in this way or that. I join this Bible study. I've got this application, this implication, this tradition. All that stuff on the outside is the second circle. Now, if you're like me, I, I need you to put on your artistic mind, f- flip the circles and put... All of what is the gospel center on this second concentric circle and make the central focus of your life all the do's, uh, do-gooding that you do for being saved. All the applications, all the gospel implications, all the traditions, put that in the center and put the gospel content on the second circle outside of that. That's legalism. That's where you take good things and you turn them into things that you believe you need to keep, do or keep doing to save yourself from going to hell, to save yourself from sin. And so either Christ deals with your sins or you're dealing with your sin. Either you're working from the outside in to try to help yourself be saved or you're letting God work from the inside out where you are saved by grace through faith alone from a heart that's changed and you do things from the inside out. You're either working from the inside out, which is being saved, or you're working from the outside in, trying to save yourself, and that's legalism. How do we break the spell of legalism? Um, Paul called it a bewitching influence. He said, who has bewitched you in Galatians? Who, who, who's got you under their spell um, where you believe you're right with God by what you're doing versus by what Christ has done for you? Um, we, op- we started by the Spirit, and now you're trying to perfect yourself in the flesh. That's the rebuke of Galatians. Well, Jesus, he is, he is breaking the spell of legalism here with this issue of hand-washing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to um, read some to you right now because I think it's important to catch you up on what we learned a couple weeks ago. And then it goes all the way down to verse 20 
where again, Jesus is bringing up the issue of hand washing. And so I think it brackets this section well. Uh, Follow as I read beginning at verse one though in chapter 15. It says, then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? For the for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides and if blind and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this, the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. From out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Big picture point. Don't ignore the true problem. The problem isn't ceremonial washing. The problem is your heart. That's the big idea. You got to define the true problem to deal with the issue in your life. And if you're trying to wash your way into heaven, that's a road that's headed to hell. But if you let the Lord deals, deal with what truly is going on inside your heart, that's the way that leads to life. That's what's happening here. That's what we need to understand. This is, this is uh, really uncovering the scandal of legalism. Um, People hate when someone is duped or scandalized. When there's a scandal and people lose a lot by some sort of con artist, um, it's always something that's hot news that people want to read about. It's sort of something you love to hate. You're intrigued by how someone could be duped by a scandal and you want to save yourself from being um, duped in the same way. And so you read about that. You want to think about that. Well, the ultimate scandal is the scandal of legalism and the ultimate enemy behind the scandal is Satan himself. It's a cover up. It hurts people and it sends people to hell because they think they are fine. They think they're just fine when they really or not. Now, just by way of review, um, verses 1 to 10 is talking about legalism where Jesus flips the script on the Pharisees. They're concerned with hand washing and wanting to maintain control. And Jesus basically says, you're concerned with traditions. 
You're trying to, number one, elevate tradition above Scripture. You're trying to say hand-washing is required when Scripture says nothing about that. Um, Scripture in the Old Testament, the Levitical law, talked about the Levitical priest had to wash before they performed ceremonies. But then a man-made tradition was built on that where people were then required under Jewish tradition to wash. If the priest washed, then surely you have to wash. That's the idea. And so then they had their binding argument. And Jesus flips it on them and says, not only are you requiring tradition, elevating that above scripture, you're also ignoring scripture. You're what in verse six says, making void the word of God. You're deadening the word of God to people. How? By basically saying they could um, reject the Ten Commandment that says, honor your father and mother. And you could, in the name of religion, cry out Corbin. That was what they were using. It's the idea that you could invest all of your money towards the temple. You can spend all you have during your lifetime and ignore your dying or sick or needy parents by saying Corbin. And it's your Ali Ali Oxen free card that says, I can dedicate everything to the temple. Once I die, it goes to God. So my parents can just, uh, you know, deal with what they have or don't have. And that's what is confronted here. Verse four here, the scripture says, honor your father and mother. If you revile father and mother, you're surely, you, you have a death sentence on you. Verse four, that's what the Bible says, but you've fed them a line. The Pharisees are saying that you can cry Corbin and saying, um, what I would have given you is given to God. And so I don't need to do it. That's making void the word of God. And then Jesus levels um, his, his accountability on them with verse 7, calls them hypocrites. You hypocrites. You play actors. You're playing and you're dead inside. Um, they were elevating self above God. They were exercising unregenerate worship, false worship. Their heart was far from the, the Lord, even though they were mouthing the words of worship. And they were vain teachers, empty teachers, teaching this horrible doctrine. So verse 10 leads us into Jesus's pastoring moment. So he wants to pastor the crowd. He's not trying to be right in terms of winning an argument against the Pharisees. His aim is to protect the people from their scam, from their con. That would be my heart pastorally for you. I want you to be protected from legalism. Legalism is emptying. It's, it's, uh, it's deadening. It makes the word of God dead to you, even though it's alive and active. Um, your, your heart deadens when you start to try to live your life in terms of believing it's all up to you. And your spiritual life is in your hands instead of Christ's. So how do we do this? He says, let's just follow Jesus' teaching here. It says, and he called the people to him and said, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. A naturally minded person will look at verse 11. just want to say this up front. And it's, it's, it's as simple as sitting in a first grade class hearing a verse like this. It just says, it's not what goes in that defiles the person. It's not the food. It's not whether it was ceremonially, you know, Washed hands, putting bread in your mouth, that really has nothing to do with defilement. But it's what comes out that defiles a person. What in the world is Jesus saying? Well, a spiritually minded person will get what a naturally minded person will not get. A spiritually minded person will shift mid-sentence and say, okay, we're, we're not talking about ceremonial washed hands 
feeding myself only. We're saying that doesn't defile you, that doesn't corrupt you, but mid-sentence, I'm picking up on the fact that what does, it's what comes out of my mouth that defiles a person. It's it's not, it's something physical is, is what Jesus is talking about going in. But now he's talking about something spiritual in verse, at the end of verse 11, where he's talking about the heart. There's some defilement, not food coming back up like regurgitated food. There's some defilement that comes from something inside. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying you need to look inside and understand the real problem. This is the corrective. That Jesus is making here. Now, what does this look like in our own life? I want to risk it a little bit um, and go there on a on an issue that is, I think, a sensitive one to bring up. Because ceremonial washing is something sort of distant and far away in our own minds, and um, we don't really have that tradition within the church. Um, but there are some things that I think are, you know. Interesting traditions that we do that are often based in biblical principle that I think we should ask, am I doing this thing out of a conviction, out of a biblical application, out of me believing I'm commanded to do it, or am I doing it out of tradition? And, and, and sort of evaluate where you are as a spiritual test in terms of whether you are operating legalistically. The issue I want to bring up, and I bring it up with fear and trepidation, is um, something that often many of us were raised to do, and we do it out of a a genuine and sincere heart. But I still want to bring it up because it's something that is regular and normal within church life and Christian. We're going to do it tonight when we have our meal together. We're going to have people are going to bring the pot providence, you know, together and, and the food, and we'll come back tonight. And what will I do? I'll stand up here and I will pray to ask the Lord's blessing on the meal. Let me ask this question. I'm going to be very specific with how I ask it. So you've got to use your thinking caps or you'll stone me as a heretic. All right, here we go. Here we go. Is it a biblical requirement? Are you commanded before every meal to ask the blessing? Is that a biblical command to ask the blessing um, or to say thanks for the food? You say, am I saying not to do that? No, I do that regularly, and I do it out of, uh, out of a biblical conviction, out of a personal application, and I also do it out of my own tradition because it's how I was raised. <laughs> and I'm just trying to be honest. All these things are, are happening when I do it. I do it with regularity. Do I feel guilty if I don't do it? And then Why? That's really now where we're, we're meddling and getting into the details of life. Do you pray before you um, sip coffee? You know, when you buy that $4 cup of coffee, if you do that, right? You know, do you thank the Lord for that? Well, you might because you just paid four bucks for it. But, but with every, every, you know, potato chip, you know, or whatever you put in your mouth, I mean, what, where does it start and stop? How formal does the meal have to be before you're going into prayer? Do you, do you just pray and cross it off or cross yourself and then eat and then not, and are you not grateful for it while you're eating it? Do you pray afterwards? What if you prayed afterwards and thank the Lord for what you just ate and you're more thankful for it because you 
tasted it. I mean, there's just a lot of ways to kind of flip this thing around. And I'm not trying to undo praying before eating. I'm just trying to explore with depth. What does the Bible say about this? Well, and I brought it up to some people and tested it before I preached this and got into some serious trouble and some deep weeds in terms of like debates. And what did you mean by what you said? I didn't have the sermon in front of me, but I've kind of thought it through a little bit. And um, I do think that there are some things to think through. Um, the Bible says we're to pray without ceasing, so we should always be praying. That doesn't legalistically mean that every thought you're having is prayer if it's not you know, if if you're not actually praying, um, Jesus wasn't functionally always praying when he was performing miracles or teaching or sleeping. I mean, there, there are times to pray and, and times not to, but in principle, we're supposed to always be thanking the Lord, giving thanks always, praying without ceasing. We understand that. Acknowledging God with gratitude is bathed in the Bible. Um, we, we see Jesus model um, asking the Lord um, to bless the food as he, as he distributed to the 5,000 and more, um, the miracle of feeding the 5,000. We're going to see it. He does it again at the miracle of 4,000 feeding them. Paul in Acts chapter 27, when he was being um, taken on a prison ship to Italy, to Rome for imprisonment, for final imprisonment, um, when the storm came in Acts 27 in the island of Malta, you know, they, they were shipwrecked and suddenly Paul took a leadership position and he was distributing food and he gave thanks for that. That's Acts 27 verse 35. So he was following along with what Jesus had modeled in the early church in Acts 2 um, verses 41 to 44. You see um, people, you know, the 3000 were saved. Um, they were being baptized and they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. So there were prayers happening. Were they happening functionally right before Who's ever done this where, hey, you say the public blessing and then someone was in the bathroom and they come into the meal and you go, oh, it's covered. We've, we've prayed. It's good. Now we say that, right? And it's, it's funny, but it's to break the tension of, oh, what, what do I need to do, you know, publicly at this point? That's teetering on the traditional side of, of why we do what we do. And I'm, I'm just trying to open it up. Just trying to keep it real. I want this to make Sunday lunch, um, you know, what happened? What did Jeff say? Conversation. All right. Deuteronomy 8.10, it says, You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. That's the prayer after you ate. So I don't know what was going on in the mind of Israel, but they prayed after. So ceremonial washing, again, that's far removed, but what is it with praying is it a biblical requirement? Um, I think something that could be wholeheartedly a good thing could be turned into legalism. I think that's probably the best pastoral angle I would take with it. But we have to go to where is the scripture explicitly talking about this um, directly? And there's one place in scripture that talks directly to praying for food that you're about to take in. And that's First Timothy 4. I would encourage you to turn there. First Timothy 4, 1 to 5. Paul is talking directly to the church that was dealing with early church legalism. That's the context that he's speaking in. He says, now the Spirit, Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. He's talking about legalism, sending people away from the faith or false teachers. He says, depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. That's false teaching and teachings of demons. This is doctrines of demons. We're talking about demonic intrusion into the church, sending people to hell. 
says, how do, how do they do it? Well, verse 2, this is the false teacher. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They're hard-hearted. Who forbid marriage. What did that mean? They were saying, look, it's more spiritual to stay celibate, to stay single. Paul said it. Paul said, I have an undivided heart. If I stay single, I wish you were all that way. So we're just going to solemnify that and apply it. We're going we're to make it required for you that, you know, if you were really spiritual, you would stay single. That was something that was going on in the early church. And requirement or and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here it is, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is, is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Here's verse 5. Here's the directive. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So if you lift verse 5 out of that context and just say, hey, I know I'm supposed to pray before I eat because it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's what people do. All of this has to be front-loaded with what is Paul talking about in terms of people being under a legalistic spell and what does he mean in terms of praying with thanksgiving when we, when we participate in eating food? Well, uh, you have to understand there were Gnostics back then, heretics, false teachers who were into Gnosticism. You say, what is that? That's basic dualism saying everything evil, everything that's solid and material is evil. It's evil. It's contaminated. And, and everything that's spiritual um, is good. And so food, unless it passes muster with, um, you know, with the haves and the have not, what you can eat and not, it's evil to you. And so again, they're trying to control people by saying, oh, you can have this. Oh, you can't have that. You need to do this. You can't. What? You can be married. Oh, but you, you shouldn't be married. And legalistically binding people um, with traditions and with false teachings using asceticism using the Old Testament law and mixing that with Greco-Roman Gnosticism. So Peter, uh, in the story of Acts 10, I won't belabor this, but um, in the early church, he had to work through um, kind of letting go of Old Testament law and walking in terms of the new covenant because he was, he was of a mindset still um, in Acts chapter 10 where he was on the roof at Joppa. Do you remember that? He's, he's out by the ocean. He's on the tanner's roof and he's there and he's wanting to be religious and he's wanting to be holy. He's saved, but he's, he's sort of needing to break through legalism because he can freely eat whatever he wants to eat at that point, but he doesn't know it yet. And so the Lord lowers that sheet, you know, with unclean and clean animals, ceremonially unclean animals. And he says, kill and eat. He probably lowered that sheet right on the ground. He's looking down and going, I can't do that. I can't do that. There's no way that I can um, allow myself to do something like that. And the voice came to him again, verse 15, a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And it happened three times. And ultimately, this was all to set Peter up because he didn't know it. But there was a centurion, a centurion. He was not Cornelius. He was the first Gentile convert or known to be. And he had um, been shown by the Lord that he needed to send his, his men to go get Peter so Peter could come back and evangelize him and tell him how to be truly saved. 
And verse 34 is where Peter shows up and it says, truly, I understand. Peter said, he opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. So Peter suddenly understands that Cornelius can be saved, that the gospel door has been opened for all nations to be saved. You can marry people from different races or different ethnic backgrounds if you marry in the Lord. You can, you can eat clean and ceremonially unclean food now as an example, an illustration that we are free to do that within the gospel. And so Peter gives the gospel and talks about Christ in verse 40 being raised on the third day and made to appear not to all the people, but to us. So he appeared specifically to the Jews, but the Jews were, the Jewish believers were to give the message that you could have forgiveness through his name, verse 43. And while they were standing there, the spirit of God fell upon everybody in the room. The Holy Spirit fell there. They heard the word of God and they were miraculously and dramatically saved. So that's, that's sort of what's going on in light of what Paul is teaching in First Timothy. It's breaking the spell of legalism. Colossians had the same issue in Colossae, Colossians 2, 20 to 23. If Christ... If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Why are you allowing these vain philosophies to come into the church uh, where it says don't handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish according to human precepts and teachings. They have the appearance of wisdom. Listen to this verse in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you try to correct your own sin problem with what you, what you keep away from or what you do more of, you will just exacerbate the problem and make it worse and worse and worse. You're submitting to regulations that appear to be wise, but are self-made religion. It's like being a, a monk or being, you know, someone who's trying to correct things. So back to First Timothy 4, verse 4, it says, for everything is created, everything created by God is good. What does that mean? It means God has given us wonderful things in common grace for us to enjoy. And you might say, well, I think a Big Mac is sinfully charged because it's just bad for me. But, but what I'm saying is food in general is more, it's morally no, neutral. It is. It's morally neutral. Everything in our world is affected by the fall. The only thing that's born in sin with a sinful heart is a human. But everything else materially is neutral. It's for us to enjoy. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when you had... Um, uh, where you had people who were afraid to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And I can understand why. I mean, there, were witch, there was witchcraft going on and devil worship happening and meat was being sacrificed to idols. And then the rest of that meat was put on to market and a Christian would go by and say, I'm not touching that thing. That's grotesque to me. That was used in, in satanic worship. But then you have another Christian who goes by and says, no, I like to shop at the Costco market here and we need meat. We're starving to death. And that stone idol or that wood idol means absolutely nothing. It's not real. That's what Paul was saying. Those are, those are not real objects. I mean, they're not, they're not gods. It's the, the spiritism that's wrong, but, but the meat is fine. And so you have stronger and weaker brothers. You have people who can participate in that. And you have people who say, I can't participate in that. And we're not supposed to judge each other, but we're supposed to also not be put into some sort of spell of legalism. And 
And, and so he's just talking that through. Romans 14 is the same thing. So how do I apply this to praying before the meal <laughs> after all that? Um, I just would say that, that it all comes down to your heart of thanksgiving. And the practice of prayer should be deeper and more by conviction for why you're doing what you're doing. And I think praying regularly before you receive a meal is a, is a great thing to do. Um, I think it is something that can be done by a biblical conviction where someone says, I really, by conviction, believe I'm supposed to do this. I think you can do it by a biblical application where you could say, I have freedom and liberty to do this. I want to do this because I believe it's a healthy application. And you can do it because you were raised to do it. And you say, this was a tradition I was raised in and I enjoy that. But you can't judge somebody else for how they do it or not. The, the principle in scripture is to be grateful is to have a heart of gratitude, to receive the, the food, um, and it's made holy by the word of God. It's just saying the word of God is telling us as believers that God has provided, provided it for us, and I want to be grateful for what the Lord has provided. And I can express that in prayer, either before, during, after, or at a later time. The, the application of doing it regularly before is just that. It's a traditional application that is based on being gratit- um, grateful. That's what I believe. Um, and I'm open for debate, but not right in an open forum right now. Okay, it's fine. Now, let me go, let me go to one that's even um, maybe a little bit more sensitive than that, a little bit more deeper, and that's, that's this. Why do I regularly, especially when I pray, public prayers, end my prayer with the phrase, in Jesus' name. And if I didn't end my prayer in Jesus' name, by saying those words in Jesus' name, is it not a true prayer? Is it not a Christian prayer? Well, again, it comes down to the heart. Um, What do you believe about why you would say in Jesus' name? That matters more than whether you said the words in Jesus' name or not. Um, In Jesus' name is a phrase Um, That is a biblical phrase, but the application of that is the theology that when you pray, the only way to God is through Christ. Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the intercessor. He's the high priest. His mediatorial role is the bridge that we get immediate access into the throne room of God, according to the book of Hebrews. We pray in Jesus' name because we are praying through Christ. I've heard it said, we pray to the Father through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a helpful way to think. We're praying through Christ. But if I'm praying, walking down the trail or or journaling, typing out my prayers, am I ending every prayer with that phrase um, as a way to, to say, I have to do it that way or it's not a valid prayer? I don't think so. I think it's a healthy tradition. It's a healthy application. It's a healthy habit. But it's, it's not necessarily required from Scripture. You say, what about John 14, 13? It says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What does that mean to ask in Jesus' name and then God will do it? Well, it simply means this. It means that when we're praying according to the will of God, God's will will be done. But when we don't pray according to the will of God, if we're praying something that isn't jiving with what God wants to do, guess what? 
No matter if you say, I'm saying this in the name of Jesus or not, it's not going to happen. There are people who, in hyper-charismatic circles, try to command weather, command events, command this in Jesus' name. I say this. Stand up, sit down. I mean, that has nothing to do with um, God's will. God's will is going to be done because he is God and we are not. Um, When we're praying in Jesus' name, what that means is we're praying prayers that are synchronizing with what God wants to have happen. How does that happen? Well, it's too long to get into, but in Romans chapter 8, it talks about how our, our groanings, our, our, our words are actually synchronized by the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit where he's taking our words, our feeble prayers, and synchronizing them with his will to work it out. And you can read on that in Romans eight twenty six through 27. It's praying through Christ. And what does the word amen mean? Amen is the Hebrew derivation of the word truth. It's the idea that you're saying, let it be so, or it is truth. I'm praying in the name of Jesus, and this is truth. Let your will be done. That's the heart behind those words. And if you're just saying those words... I'm out of rote memory, out of an emptiness, out of a religious mantra. You should evaluate that and think, no, when I say I'm praying in Jesus' name, I mean it. I'm praying through Christ and I'm praying your will be done. Remember, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done when he was in the garden. That's the heart of a prayer. And sometimes I'll conclude a private prayer in Jesus' name, and sometimes I won't. And I believe we have liberty to do that, but you don't want to deny the truth behind praying in Jesus' name. You want to live it, and you want to understand what it means. A lot of times, a lot of our phrases we use or or practices are almost like a religious crossing of yourself, and we we want to work from the inside out, not from the outside In Satan's prescription for you is to bind your conscience and to allow you to believe that you are just fine by the things that you're doing instead of seeing yourself for who you really are in terms of your own heart. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to our passage, Matthew chapter 15. Verse 12, Jesus had just taught what goes into your mouth doesn't defile, but what comes out does. In verse 12, the disciples come up and the disciples came to him, came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I mean, it's as if they don't understand that Jesus is trying to unmask their con artist scheme. Um, he's, he's doing a laser strike on the Pharisees. Jesus absolutely understood what was going on in the Pharisees' heart, and he realized that they would stumble over what he just said. The, the disciples perhaps came very sheepishly and said, do you know that you just upset the religious leaders? I mean, they were already offended by us not washing our hands, and, and now you said this, and they're more upset? I mean, perhaps they were really, really bound up with what the Pharisees thought. Verse 13, Jesus Cast the Pharisees in view of their end. Um, he, he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. 
He's using parable language again, kind of like the good seed and the bad seed. You have a, a real plant that's a real teacher of God's word, and you have a fake plant. And those plants that are planted not by God are going to be rooted up by God in the end. That's who these people are. He wants to expose them not just for their false teaching, but their false character, their bad character. They are blind guides. Matthew 27, 16, he's going to say it again. Let them alone. Verse 14 here, they are blind guides. And if a blind, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. You're just, you're just going off like a lemming off the cliff, like one animal after the other. You're just, you're blind leading the blind. You say, well, how, in what sense are the false teachers blind? Um, they are blind to what they are saying. They are blind to what they are doing. Most false teachers are blind. They have no idea what they're doing. Um, they think that what they're doing is good when they are really doing something really harmful and bad. They think what they're doing is for God when, in essence, they are a tool in Satan's hand. Um, I was recently, as you know, last weekend down in Houston. I was riding around with a good Christian friend of mine. And... Um, I was driving around in the outskirts of Houston. And Houston, you know, is a metropolitan area, big city and all of that. But you go outside of it. Usually you go outside the big city and it's rural heartland America. It just looks like Palmer or the Valley or whatever. You're just driving around. And, and I was looking at some buildings and some billboards. And one of them was Joel Osteen. And there he is, you know, and he's in Houston. This is where he does what he does. And, you know, he's... He's sort of been in the you know central um, sort of view glass of everybody's mind as as a as a person who's duping a lot of people. But it's almost like he's he's gone a little bit underground. You know, like where is he? What's he doing? He's still doing his work. He's still doing his thing. The herd is still following him, and he's smiling all the while. He's got the clear eyes behind it and and the smooth message. Why? Why do people believe it? They believe Joel Osteen less by what he says and what he promises and more by the fact that he is so convinced that what he is saying is true. He's so blind to his own deception that he's so convincing that people say, well, it must be true because he believes it's true. That's how false teachers work. They're so convinced in their own mind that what they're saying is right that they become more convincing. They're so bold in what they say that it's like, well, it must be true. And that's why we have to measure everything by the word of God and bring it back to what is the central gospel message. If you don't hear someone say you are saved by grace through faith alone, Christ's death, burial, resurrection alone to save you, that is the once for all sacrifice for sin. He is fully God and fully man at the same time. He died, was buried. He rose again. I repent of my sin in light of that. And I beg your mercy to save me. I confess you as Lord of my life. The world behind me, the cross before me. If you don't hear that language, you, you are not hearing the gospel. Do you understand? If you hear anything else, well, this is your best life now. This is what the Christian life looks like. Here's three easy steps to be made right with God or to stay right with God. That's legalism. That's spellbinding, satanic legalism to make people feel like they are just fine and you're not dealing with the real issue, which is the heart of sin. And that's next week's message.